Hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, subscribe, brain review on Apple Podcast. Um, also, our YouTube channel, Raise of Riffs. Drinking some water. I'm parched. Um, a couple things. Uh, next show I have is December 18th with Ida Rodriguez at the Rec Room. Uh, tickets will be on sale shortly. You can get them at www.recroomhb.com. I'll also be at the Bray Improv with Jay Moore, November uh, 23rd to the 26th. Tickets, www.brea.improv.com or jaymoore.com. Uh, today, uh, Alan Lee will not be with us. Uh, he's skipping this one. I also kind of didn't tell him about this one because the person I'm gonna interview it's my second time interviewing him and the first time was great and all but this time I just felt like I needed my own personal one-on-one with him because um, I'm a huge fan and he's been a great friend to me and I just felt like a trusty sidekick would ruin the not ruin it that's the bad word maybe uh, misplace the interview I think I just wanted to catch up with a buddy and uh, just one-on-one I felt would be more appropriate with this guy. Anyways, subscribe, rate, review to the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm also on Cameo and now Thrills. If For all you Europe fans, I'm on Thrills. Um, book me. I'll give you a birthday shout-out, message with a joke, whatever you want. Uh, that's how I need, I need money now, guys. That's how I'm doing it with this whole COVID stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to the next year, 2022. I'm looking forward to see what new adventures are out there. And if, uh, this whole, because let's face it, 2021, 2020, uh, they were both tough years, you know, 2021 is probably a little better than 2020, but you know, there's, if you guys know me, you know, I love comedy and, you know, I love performing. And, uh, this past two years, it's been tough because I haven't been doing as much, uh, obviously with the pandemic and COVID. So I'm looking forward to next year to see, you know, I'd, I'd like to do a new special, a new hour special, which by the way, you could purchase, make it happen still on iTunes and Amazon and I posted it on YouTube. So check it out. Tell a friend. I really believe that was my best work that I've ever done. I'm very proud of it. Um, so I'm getting ready. To, uh, I, I'm writing for a new special and I need another, I need a good year of doing shows to, to work out that stuff. I'm also writing a book. And uh, I'm going to start writing a script again. So uh, I need to feel more productive, you know. Anyways, that's just what's going on in my world. Has nothing to do with anything. Uh, This guest, though, you guys are really going to enjoy this interview. He's one of my good friends. Um, I connect with him in a weird way. I, I, I don't know why, but there's some people that I'll connect with. And there's some people I just won't. And uh, 
I really do connect with this person and I feel he connects with me. I hope he does. Uh, anyways, you see him in Deadpool. She's out in my league. Um, Valley. I probably said that word wrong. Uh, Yogi Bear and uh, the Emoji movie. Uh, the great TJ Miller will be here via Zoom on Raise the Rifts. I'm looking forward to it, and you guys are going to love it. It's going to be great. All right, guys. Don't forget, if you like the interview, subscribe, rate, and review, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Raise the Rifts. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee, right here on LA Talk Radio. Oh my gosh, it's happening. Hey, TJ, how are you, buddy? Oh my gosh, it's happening. How are you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, wait, here I have, yeah, oh my gosh, it's happening. What's up, buddy? How are you? How are you? This is so funny. I have so many funny things to tell you. I want to hear. So long in the making, and uh, it's so funny. So you're in my phone as Keith Oxnard, which I'm changing right now because of the Oxnard improv. Right. Um, and so just because of a variety of things, I couldn't quite place that it was you. I knew. <laughs> I, here's what I'll say. I knew that I liked Keith Oxnard. Right. I couldn't remember who I knew with the last name Oxnard. <laughs> so, and this is true, I was like, all right, well, I'm definitely doing this podcast, you know? And I think subconsciously I knew it was you, you know? Yeah. I knew it was the Riffin. Because the first time I interviewed you, you were at Oxnard. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Exactly, of course. And so the funniest part of this is that, um, so I'm going to keep, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in as uh, uh, Keith uh, Reza and then um, parentheses Oxnard. And then whenever we talk, I'm it's going to laugh so much about this. <laughs> because I, I did know it was you, but now I realize I was just, you know, you were so... Um, you were so absolutely um, accommodating with yeah. me scheduling because I've had so much going on with my wife and we were doing, you know, all kinds of medical stuff and it's fertility stuff. And so I sort of had to be all hands on deck for that. And then I've been, of course, very busy, but I just was like, I'm going to make this work. I absolutely have to do a podcast well, with this guy. I have to do a well, podcast with this guy. But the entire time, just continuing to rack my brain as to which of my friends has the last name Oxnard. <laughs> Part of that, too, was we haven't seen each other talk for years, right? And so... Well, we've been texting, but yeah, we haven't seen each other. Saying that. We, yeah. have, right, we haven't seen each other. Yeah. Right? And definitely, because I've lived in New York for now three years, so three or four yeah. years. Well, I, I always thought like, because um, we've only officially met uh, two or three times, but I've always yeah. thought that like you and I have always had some weird kind of energy where we just connected. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I just told, I just told Kate about that. I just got off the FaceTime with her and I told her and I said, you know, he's a very um, 
funny, but also strange guy. And he kind of talks about being sort of uh, on the spectrum. That's not exactly how you put it or whatever, but. Yeah. Um, and so she was like, all right, well just, uh, you know, be careful and exercise caution. And I was like, uh, no, 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 I don't think you understand because see, we've had a lot of people in our life who are, you're not mentally unbalanced, but I'm saying we've had people in our life that are mentally unbalanced, uh, mentally ill, yeah. um, lots of them have come after us. And we've had, you know, I mean, the big, the, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest nightmares of our life is this girl who's mentally ill. She's just not, she's not well. Right. And she was, you know, uh, she kind of came after us and did very crazy, terrible things to us in college and then did that again as part of the Me Too movement. She was like, this is the perfect time. But in her mind, Kate kind of stole her life and took me away from her. And but also Kate was her best friend and she was best friends with Kate. And none of this is true, obviously. Right. But she created all of this in her mind where um you know she was best friends with kate and but she lied about she said that uh i was physically abusing kate and that's but kate was friends with her and had told her that but was protecting me and so lying about me and just all this stuff that you know is from a mentally ill person and kind of a stalker but also just a very she has borderline personality disorder that's kind of that plus bipolar plus you know, and I knew that because this girl was in our improv group until we had to ask her to leave because she was so, she just was so unwell. And she, we said to her, you need to focus on getting better, not on a college improv group or college improv group. And so the difference Katie, between me is I have Asperger's, so I don't mean any ill. I just want to like say, hey, buddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, <laughs> so, uh, and so she, Kate, you know, and then the guy that called me transphobic was like this unwell person who I don't know that he had Asperger's, but he was just, he was the strangest guy. And he was, he always wanted to do improv and write about it. He was just obsessed with comedy, um, but he was not really a funny guy. But a lot of us in Chicago felt really bad for him. So he had an email list of the people that had been nice to him you know yeah and and then he was this guy who who emailed me and said you're you have transphobic slurs on your uh website and i just got so upset with him because for so many years i had supported him and he had thought that i was funny and i was very nice to him and answered any questions he wanted and so i got really upset and I was like, you know, I don't care if you're a boy or a girl. I just, you know, don't tell me that I have transphobic slurs. How dare you? I just got really, really upset. And then he of course published that email. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so we've learned a lot throughout our life about uh, how unwell people can come after us, but all of that is to say, you're not mentally unwell. It's just Kate hears that somebody's a little bit off. And I said, well, I'm obviously a little bit off. I'm brain damaged and manic. And I take medication to prevent seizures, but also to help keep my mania at bay. Um, so anyway, across the board, it was just, all of this is to say, this was a very funny, 
misconnections, you know, miss, uh, what, was, what do you call it? miss? Um, I don't know the name for it, but it's like, uh, it was a series of misconnections, misapprehensions, misinformation, all this stuff. And it's, I'm just so glad because when you sent me the link, then I was like, oh shit, Resin Riffs, of course, you know? <laughs> but it was, I, I knew that I was doing this podcast, but I just had fucked myself over by putting Oxnard as your last name. Yeah, and I usually have a, a co-host, Alan Lee, but I wanted it just to be you and me because like I said, I feel like, I felt like this just needed to be a friend talk, you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Talk. and we do we have always had a connection because i think you're so funny and so interesting and also so smart yeah um so good so now now the preamble's over hello hi how are you (laughs) i'm so good man i mean obviously i wish this would be in person so like you know i could give you a hug but i mean thank you so much for taking your time i mean i know you're busy and you know i just gotta say like about that whole you know, the stuff that's going on in your life, I think like, obviously the me too thing was a scary situation, but in a way I feel that it also brought you and Kate closer together. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure. But we had been, we had gone through this in college. That's why this was so scary. Yeah. And have this person emerge on a national level, you know? And so, um, but both of us did always know that she would try and come after us again. We had, um, you know, we had to have a private investigator figure out where, she, cause she also was dangerous in a way where we were always worried. We just did not know what she was capable of. And that, that's the scary thing, especially like about people who think that they've had a relationship with somebody, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, whoa, whoa you know? Like, yeah, and and I think both of us were like, we don't know what she's so is she capable of like trying to come to her house? Is she capable of violence? Those sorts of things are really scary because she's not just like people with borderline personality disorder don't just lie. You know, they can be they can go to other areas. They can try and like let's say poison someone, and that sounds very medieval, but that's not outside of the realm of possibility. So we were always scared. And then when uh, all this really good stuff started happening, where they're calling out these people who are Bill Cosby level of, you know, whatever. But once we saw that Garrison Keillor, you know, uh, left radio because somebody said that he had touched her back in an inappropriate way. um, And then they wanted to fire him and he just quit. And once we saw that those types of things were getting people fired and canceled or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Then we really both knew we were like, you know, this, she's going to try and come after us because she's been waiting to, and she really wants to hurt us. And so not only did it, you know, I'm not sure if it brought us closer together, but it, it would definitely solidify that we can make it through anything. Yeah. So that's, that's a positive that came out of it. And I think too, I mean, it's really, and I'm, I'm not sure I would talk with, many people about this besides you but i also wouldn't feel comfortable eating a banana with some peanut butter on a podcast except with you um speaking of peanut butter i want to buy your peanut butter but oh, get into it it's so good it's so so good and which uh, one's your favorite the toffee like, looks good that's it i like the toffee crispy but the chocolate cherry 
uh, or the cherry chocolate is so um, uh, good, you know, because it has dried cherries. So it's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. Right. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just like a, a huge, uh, I'm a huge fan of all three of them. The coconut is kind of like best in small doses. Um, but I guess I'm not the biggest coconut fan, but the chocolate, uh, cherry, and the um, uh, the chocolate, cherry, and the toffee crispy, you can kind of finish those in one sitting, you know? Because it's what? not, it's you eat it out of the jar. You, you can make it on sandwich. I've never put it on a sandwich. Show. I've only <laughs> eaten them out of the jar. And that's kind of what they're designed to be. They're designed to be this, you know, this very... Um, a gourmet peanut butter that you sort of just don't have you don't have to put it on sandwich and most people don't i think you know you might put it on bread maybe or something but it's its own whole thing but let me um let me just finish what i was saying which was that um it did it was positive in the sense that hollywood you know none of my representation dropped me or anything like that it's just then suddenly um I became someone in Hollywood who was, they would say toxic or radioactive. I would say that now suddenly um, was a publicity liability, right? right. They, so people didn't want to hire me or do any of that kind of stuff. But that was, I mean, it was not great. Uh, and I'm not saying great in the, that, the traditional sense, but that was great because it really got me to focus full time and absolutely on uh, stand-up comedy. And I'm not sure I would have done that. I was doing films and kind of trying to fit stand-up in, but I left Silicon Valley to just do film and stand-up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the media kind of, it's just a constant everything. It's just the whole, the whole world in the media is clickbait uh, focused and that's really too bad. But I had actually a really nice departure with Silicon Valley um, in part because HBO was so good to me and Mike Judge was so good to me and Clay Tarver, who was a writer and a director on the show was so good to me. And they kind of understood that I was like, you know, I think this is the right time to exit. I think it's a really funny exit. And I want to kind of focus on other stuff, but mostly I think this is a really funny thing that he goes to an opium den and you just never see him again. And they sort of understood that, but they wanted, they're like, can you do a season finale, you know, or so, something like that. And that kind of what killed the whole purpose though. You know what I mean? Exactly. The joke would be ruined. Yeah. And so, you know, I said I would be open to that, but I'm not going to do it. I said, I just want you to understand that, but I'm never going to say never. And um, so I was really happy about my exit. And also, I was doing stand up at night, you know, and then hanging out after the show and having drinks. Stuff. Then I'd have a 5 a.m. call. And so I would get to work a lot of times just exhausted. And we, a couple of the days, we would, um, we would do a scene, it would go really well. And then I'd go while they were changing the lights and just sleep under a desk on yeah. set. And then they would sort of wake me up and I'd be like, all right, let's go. And then I would do great, you know, for my scene. And then I would go and go back to sleep. And a lot of people just thought, oh, he doesn't really care about this. Problem was I cared about every single thing I was doing and I was trying to do all of it. Right. 
and once really once I had a um, you know a manic episode that I couldn't come to work it would have been dangerous to come to work it would have been really bad to go to work and so I had to miss work and that's really bad because you know it's it you lose a lot of money and it's um, I mean it's bad for a bunch of reasons but that's part of my issue is that if I medicate incorrectly or but if I have a manic episode, then, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's a real manic episode. It is, yeah. um, it's, uh, um, what would I say? It's like, it's, it's, it's very heavy duty. It's believing that the television is talking to you. It is thinking that the Chinese government is looking through your um, computer camera. Right. Um, it is uh, believing that drones are sort of circling and look, and that's a paranoid manic. It's almost a, um, a psychological split, you know, from reality. And even now, I would still honestly say, I, I can't, I'm not going to bring it up all the time, but uh, I will say to you that I definitely still believe that when I was on the computer, when pages were loading, it, they would before they loaded, it would flash, come to China, visit China. Uh, China is the place to be. And then it goes away and the page loads. It's, and actually the hair on the back of my neck is kind of standing up right now. And it gives me like goosebumps in a bad way to remember that that was all very real. Of course, I can't uh, sit here and say the television was talking to me right. and that birds were drones and stuff. But I do remember that there were birds and bats that I saw and I thought that those could be drones. I smashed my computer camera and I told Kate that the television was talking to me and if she could see it and I'd locked myself in um, uh, my apartment and it was just a really, really bad, um, uh, you know, mental breakdown. And um, so because I'm telling you all that in part because I um, I understand in a really strange and difficult way that this woman who has attacked us is mentally ill. And so instead of, from my perspective, going, she's evil or she's this or that, I can't do that. All I can say is she's unwell and I hope that she gets the help that she needs. And I hope that she actually um, at some point can feel well and that can be directed to understand that. But the problem is, is that people with borderline personality disorder, um, there's not a lot that you can do for it. I think you can medicate it in some ways, but it's often the result of a trauma or, so it's very strange to have had a woman try and destroy us twice. And instead of hating her, kind of wishing her the best, which is right. very, that's a, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance within that. Um, I know I know how that feels, though, because like my ex, I mean, I, I don't have a girlfriend anymore, and she never tried to ruin my relationship with anyone, but she tried to ruin my comedy career because yeah, like I, it, that's just like I mean, I, I'm not a headliner like I'm honestly like I'm being real with you. I feel I'm a feature headliner like I could headline if I need to, but I'm a feature, you know, Yeah, which is which actually in some ways um ends up being really nice because the people that feature for me and when I play Oxnard, I can only work with you. That's clear. You know what I mean? Oh my God. I wish I would have known. No, no, no. But I haven't, <laughs> uh, I haven't, I haven't played Oxnard in a long time. Yeah. Um, 
in many, many years. But when I go back, it's you and me, buddy, for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to hold you to that. You know, I will with my ass. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. And you you know me and I'm telling you, that'll be a blast. (laughs) But the guys that I tour with, one is Cash Levy, who I have the podcast with. Yeah. And he's a headliner. He headlines all over. He does corporate gigs. But he'll always say, and the other two guys that headline with me, is that uh, it's, there's nothing better than featuring because you get the audience after they've already had uh, been warmed up by the MC and you only have to do 20, 25 minutes. Uh-huh. And then the headliner does the heavy lifting and you can just sit back and relax and enjoy watching the headliner or have time to sort of, you have plenty of time before the second show. And if there's only one show that night, you're done with work. 30 minutes after the show starts you know? yeah and i will say that when somebody i will say that when somebody um feature it i do a two-man show right now so these guys have to all sort of open up cold and so then they're doing the work of two people but it's still you know if you're good and you can talk to the crowd or let's say your material is excellent then you know it's a good spot to be it's a good spot to be uh, one of the great features you know now, so, I wanted to ask you about that because it seems like a lot of comics are moving from that three-man show to a two-man show. Like, I know Norm, you know, uh, his last year of stand-up, he moved from three to two. And yeah. I know Saget moved from three to two, too. So I was wondering, is that just something because of COVID-related or is that just something? COVID, COVID <clears throat> as in a lot of things, Um including this, that we all sort of were more open to just meeting people digitally or hanging out digitally. Um, COVID accelerated this, um, uh, COVID accelerated this, uh, um, hold on one second. Do you have to go? I want to respect your time. No, no, no. I'm just telling this guy, um, you know, that I'm on this podcast and I'm doing it, you know, t- until right. five or a little bit longer. Okay. But um, COVID accelerated that idea. And we just started to feel like if you've got somebody great, if they can open cold, then it also gives the headliner more room to do. Because if you do two shows, you have to get off stage at a certain point or the second show starts late. Right. And if you start the second show 30 minutes late, it pisses uh, the audience off. And, and it, it just, it hurts your, yes, it makes the audience more difficult. Right. And so I think people did that. And a lot of features sort of said, yeah, I can, I can start without an MC. And, you know, you do, then you can pay them a little bit more or the club can pay them $150 a show instead of $100 a show because they don't have to pay the MC. And then that also, then you're not having to pay out of your pocket to the feature because he's not getting enough to make it worth his while. And I used to actually pay for the travel and I would do bonuses um, for the features if I sold out, just because, you know, being a feature and traveling with a headliner is not very financially lucrative unless there's some. So I think that doing those two man shows sort of made it a little bit more lucrative for the, um, you know, financially lucrative for the features because it's of course appealing to, you know, I mean, opening for Norm MacDonald is just like, yeah, it's an amazing opportunity, but you also don't want to be losing money. And I of course wanted to ask you about that because 
Norm Macdonald was my favorite uh, comedian, my favorite living comedian until he fucked that up. Right. He, he and like, I'm not just <laughs> saying this. I'm being honest. He really loved you. Uh, he, Thank you. He listened to my because he listened. He listened to every single interview I ever did until he died. And he he, wow. he, he listened to our interview and he's like, he's like, you and TJ have good em- energy, man. I was like, yeah. He's like, you should ask TJ. You should send TJ your clip. He'll love you. And I did. I don't know if you ever saw it, but um, yeah, yeah. So no, I yes, and I think you know, and you are really, really funny, and you're such a sweet and genuine and earnest person. And I only knew him through Twitter. Yeah, we DM'd and had actually a friendship on Twitter, and we ended up being crypto buddies because he, of course, because who he is, he got into crypto and the idea of buying low and selling high and then using the profits. It's all a gambling thing, I think, for him. Oh, he was a huge gambler. I remember we did South Point and he's at the poker table. The show starts at seven o'clock. Uh, the, the MC texts me like, he, you know, he's, a, you know, I'm about to go on. I was like, all right, Norm, I'm about to go on. So I need you because he used to tell me to do 30 minutes if he's running late, you know. So uh, he texts me when I'm at the 23 minute. He's like, do another 20. <laughs> I'm on a hot streak. It's going well. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, and my, did, he, did he ever play craps? Uh, I never saw him play craps. I only saw him play blackjack and poker. So that I would have always wanted to play craps with him. Um, that would have been a big dream. But in my mind somewhere, I was like, I bet he doesn't play craps. It's yeah. hard to have a system in playing craps. There is a system, but blackjack is much... Uh, you also, you lock in and it's just you. And it's the same on the poker table. Um, but I like craps because it's everybody against the house. Everybody's on the same team. And everybody celebrates when it goes well. And they all are on the same down and downed energy when it doesn't go well. And so I really like craps because of the social aspects of the game. So I don't spend a lot of money on the craps. So I usually go in with $150. Yeah. I really would never go past two hundred and fifty dollars, um, but you know sometimes I win and sometimes I'll lose it all. But if I lose it all, I'm like, well, I paid for that experience, and I love that experience. It's so you know, you're hugging a, a small uh, ch- Chinese woman and you're friends <laughs> with her, and you're fist bumping a guy who you know you would really be intimidated by because he's so gangster. And then you're annoyed by these young, white, you know, fratty kids. But when they roll a great roll, you're like, you know, and you can say anything on the craps table. So you can be like, we wouldn't be friends in real life, but buddy, I love you right now. And then they're laughing (laughs) because they're so happy. And that's one of the only positives of the pandemic is I can go to a casino and wear a hat and a mask. Mm -hmm. And people hear my voice and they kind of, think oh is that that guy um but i really can sort of go incognito and i just played crafts with my buddy cj sullivan in uh, pittsburgh and that was one of the great roles and i'm sure you must have heard this stuff from uh, norm sometimes but when you have a great role or a great night at the blackjack table or the poker table you don't leave <laughs> no no that's so so my buddy cj sullivan he quit drinking like a little over a year ago and he's being much more responsible. And I am too. I used to sort of 
you know, from my Chicago days and even after that, I used to really drink it up, but you kind of can't keep doing that. Well, it's just the case. Everybody knows that. And so now I'm a lot more measured, a lot more responsible, but about everything kind of. And I, I now have a neuropsychologist who's really spectacular and I'm doing cognitive remediation, which is where you don't uh, medicate a problem away. You use these really traditional, you know, it's so funny, but I, I don't, cause I have, I'm brain damaged. You know, that I have an AVM and yeah, yeah. it's removed and stuff. So I, I, I wouldn't do things that other people would do. Like I never was like, it's important to get a, a good amount of sleep. You know, the only reason I would get eight hours of sleep or nine hours is because my neurologist said, if you don't do that, you can have a stroke or an aneurysm or a seizure. Um, an aneurysm, you just die, you know, and a stroke, you wish you had had an aneurysm. Right. Um, but uh, I, I really, um, I really never thought to look at my schedule the day before or not do things because I was, I was accepting too much work or it was going to exhaust me. And that's why I actually really appreciate you working with me because now I am able to say for my own health and sanity, I can't do the podcast this week or I can't, or I'm not going to take a second show. And I still have problems with that because um, I was only in Los Angeles really for one day on Wednesday yeah. and uh, no, on Thursday. And I did um, cognitive remediation with my neuropsychologist in the morning. Then I had a bunch of things that I had to do at our place. Uh, and then after that, I went and had um, sort of a meeting and a hangout with my buddy Bennett, who's a really talented director. And then after that, I went and had um, dinner with my managers. Oh, sorry. And before meeting with Bennett, I went with my agent to get in and out burger. So I had three dinners. Um, I, I really you all did. go to in and out each time? I know, yeah, right. I had in and out and then I had kielbasa with my buddy who wanted to grill with me, Bennett. And so my agent, Ryan, uh, I had in and out then kielbasa with my buddy, Bennett, and then Musso and Franks with my managers. And then after that, I went and did two shows at the Improv. And after that, I went and jumped on a show at the Laugh Factory. And then yeah. the next day I had to leave to then do. So I was exhausted uh, yesterday for the shows. And I felt kind of woozy during the first show because I'm also producing something, these sort of mini specials that are me doing improvised stand-up at the end of the show. Yeah, you were telling me about that. And so that wasn't... Um, I mean, we had some technical difficulties in the first show, but it was really, I was really exhausted. And so that wasn't quite up to the standards that I necessarily have. Um, but um, it's still, uh, it was a lot of fun, but that's an example of where I didn't really do what I should have done, which is say, I'm not going to do this. But also that day was so full and fun. And I had so much, because I also got to see some great comedians at the improv and um and I had a great show on the main stage of the improv. And then the Laugh Factory was really fun. I just did six minutes before Craig Robinson went up. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's the problem too, is for my own mental and physical health, I should be doing less. But we would see that in, in my world of neuropsychology and neurology and all that. We would see that as a regression, sort of a backslide or whatever they call it in... Uh, a relapse of um, 
sort of going back to that manic energy and acting in a manic way. The thing that I'm working on now is how do I be as successful as I've been and accomplish all the things that I used to accomplish because of that manic energy in the scope of being a um, measured person. And that's what I've been doing for a couple of years now. And it goes really well, but then get to Los Angeles. I can only do this stuff uh, this day and I can handle it. I can do it. I have unlimited, you know, manic energy. Um, and of course, nothing bad happened from that, except that uh, shows last night, I was just exhausted in a way that I just can't do anymore. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that, uh, um, but anyway, I think that craps kind of embodies everything that I like about, um, uh, you know, about, uh, it all goes back to crabs. <laughs> yeah, it's all go back to crabs. It's like the energy is very addictive, but I, you know, you said you never leave. Uh, what it comes back to with craps is that we had this night, me and CJ, we went, we went to the craps table, we gambled while it went around and then I rolled and it was a great roll. I like hit like, I don't know, three, four, five points. We were making so much money. We lost a little money, then we were making all this money back. And um, it was so fun. And we made hundreds of dollars for my roll. And then I went to CJ and he rolled and he crapped out right away. And then it went to the guy next to him who's like a systematic, really good craps player. And then he crapped out too. And then it was going back to these annoying like white guys, like these white kids, Yeah, you know, were very fratty and broy. That's what they are. They were really broy. And CG and I were like, I was like, are you up? Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was like, let's go. And I said, you know, we could go get a pizza, which not, neither of us are eating late at night. And so we decided, okay, the pizza place was closed. Right? And then it was like, do you want to play some roulette? And uh, he was like, okay. And maybe we'll go outside for a smoke. And we went outside and we go, let's go home. Let's just go home. Let's cash out our chips and go home. And we both made a couple hundred dollars. And so when you said that, you know, when you're winning, you don't, you don't leave. Or the thing is, when it goes well, you don't leave. And in Pittsburgh, we totally left. And then I, for the next couple of days, was like, hey, this is craft money, man. This is the casino's money. I'm ordering a sandwich. Casino's paying for that. Oh, that's so awesome. I have, I have a different approach to gambling because it's not really about winning money. And yeah. I think that can be really, really good. But I think for Norm, he would always say to me, well, I'm getting in on Cardano and I sort of lost a little money when I did this trade incorrectly with, um, you know what a little money to norm was 10,000. Really? Yeah. So whenever he said I lost a little money, it's a minimum of 10,000. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but he, I think he also won a lot of money too, but there's a famous. Oh yeah. Thing. He won a lot. He was a professional poker player too. People don't yeah. know that. He went on celebrity poker um, a couple of times and I think did really well. But he, there's a famous thing where his rider would say, do not pay Norm in cash the night of, because he would take it straight to the casino. <laughs> um, and I think that's so funny. But yeah, I'm sure he played poker online all the time and, yeah. and was, you know, because he was a professional poker player. But more than anything, he was just the funniest comedian alive and a nihilist. And he and I would talk about philosophy a fair amount. Um, we would sort of chat about that stuff. And he said some amazing things. He never said online, like, 
you're one of the funniest or something like that. But he told the girl who worked at the Laugh Factory that he thought I really could be one of the greats. And then when I left Silicon Valley um, and started touring full time, he said probably the nicest thing um, pretty much ever, I forget exactly how he put it, but he kind of, um, he was very encouraging of me doing um, stand up, you know? Yeah. And so he said, um, uh, you know, something, yeah, he would, here's what he would always say. He'd say, um, uh, you know, uh, he would just say stuff like, um, you know, I'm waiting for the dip because I want to buy the dip. And it was just a gambling thing for him, for sure. But this, you know, it's like um, I'd asked him questions about Magritte and, uh, you know, and his Netflix show. And then he would say things like, you know, I was thinking your act when I first saw you at the Laugh Factory because I think you're the, I think our best impressions are our first. And then he talked about the problem that he had his act. And if I think of something funny, but then when I see my act, I see the problem with some of my jokes because they just don't fit in the act. And so he just said some really amazing um, stuff to me. And we had some pretty great stand-up confession or stand-up conversations um, and about philosophy and Zen and stuff like that. Yeah, but he said, I don't want to gamble anymore. Too sickening. I got chain link, but that's it. Other than this. So it was like, you know, gambling stuff um, for sure. But anyway, what he did say to me was something like, I'm so glad that you're on the road because guys like us need to be on the road traveling and telling jokes and not saying other people's words. That was yeah. sort of one of the things that he said. And I'm sure that comes from the SNL experience of wanting to do what he wanted to do and then being met with opposition. But it was one of the greatest things in the world to say, because I consider myself a stand-up comic, a comedian, and then, and not an actor, but a comedian who has acted a lot, you know, and has done a lot of acting. And people say, that's not true. You're a really good actor. And I, you know, I, I'm not rude about it, but I sort of said, well, I, I don't really care about being known as a great actor, but it's very important to me to become a great comedian. And so for him to encourage me and say that thing, guys like us, um, was one of the biggest things in the world. There's that story of John Lovitz was in a Woody Allen film. And he said, what do you want me to say right now? And um, Woody Allen said, well, you know, just make something up. I mean, guys like us say something, you yeah. know, we're, you know, we just, we say something and it's going to be funny. And John Lovitz almost started crying because that was so crazy that Woody Allen. So, and I think he was one of the best for a lot of reasons. What did you love about his stand-up? About Norm? Well, yeah. I mean, Obviously, my comedy is very uh, influential from him, but it's because I was on the road with him for seven years. Um, he, t he taught me everything I know about comedy because I was very nonverbal and he, you know, just him going out of his way and, you know, talking to me and stuff and getting me out of my shell. Like Norm was my comedy dad. Like we, yeah. had, a, we had a father son relationship and, um, you know, there there's so many great stories, but there's also a lot of bad stories too. You know what I mean? And it goes both ways. But the thing I learned most about Norm was always be funny and always try and be funnier than me. And that it was like, I think out of the thousand shows I did to him, like, honestly, I was funnier than him twice. Ah. And, 
I remember one of those shows, he came up to me after a show. He's like, I just want you to know, I wasn't trying. I wanted you to feel good about yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but the fact that, I mean, you know this, he was, the, he, he was the sweetest guy. And I think like, maybe that's why maybe I, I bond with you because you guys, like, I, I don't look at you as a friend. I look at you as a brother. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I, like, I feel, I feel like I could just text you anytime. And I know like you're, you know, you're busy and stuff, but I feel you'll always respond when you can. And a lot of people don't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think a lot of people are so focused on themselves that they see everybody else as sort of someone that, you know, is comes second, but also someone that um, is just an obstacle in some ways to them getting what they want or doing what they want to do, which is whatever they want to do, doing whatever they want. But, you know, Kate would call us kindred spirits. Yeah. And that's her way of saying it because we have a lot of the same values. We find a lot of the same things funny. And it just wasn't a surprise to me when you said, oh, I opened for normal when you texted me about how close you guys were. And, um, you know, you said comedy dad here, but you said something similar um, over, yeah, that he was just your best friend when you're just all time great friends. I, would, I was one of the few people who knew about the cancer. And really? The, yeah. And the fact that he told me about it, like he swore me a secrecy. He was, and I found out in January or December. And, really? you know, obviously he had it for years before, but I knew something was going on. I was like, Norm, what's going on? You're going to the hospital all the time. I know, I know you don't have COVID and you're losing a lot of weight. And he shaved his head at one point, And then he just told me, he's like, don't tell anyone. You know, and he he literally said, if I tell anyone, you know, he'll never talk to me again. And I kept it to his grave, you know. And, and I think that he he he's just not a comedian who wanted that to be a part of his identity. Yeah, you know? and he totally. He he always made jokes about it, too. Which is good. I mean, you know, that's kind of what you need to do. And he saw all of it as sort of really. The whole thing was ridiculous. So then I, I, I wanted to ask your opinion about this, which is, do you think, you know, in my un, uneducated opinion, I have thoughts, but uh, do you think that he knew that um, Hitler's dog gossip and trickery was going to be his last special? No. he was, First of all, I wrote that title, Hitler's dog. Did you really? Yeah. Because, uh, like, we were, we were going on the road. He's like, I don't know what to call this special. I was like, well, you're closing with Hitler's dog. Just call it Hitler's dog. Because I think that that would be the most daring comedy special ever. Because it's like Hitler's the meanest person ever, and you're making fun yeah. of him. <laughs> yeah. And also, you're talking about how much his dog loved him. So <laughs> it, really, it, definitely, it definitely sort of comes together as... And the callback of saying something sarcastically and being able to say anything. Oh, I'm going to call my, that's what I'll do. I'll end with Hitler's dog. And in that callback, he's talking about how horrible the media has become and how terrible it is that people record each other and try and destroy people, all of that. And he was also calling back to one of the funniest jokes of all time 
that it becomes so absurdist where he's talking about, I'm the one, you're not a bad person. I'm the one that goes from town to town, systematically killing entire families, committing <laughs> arson. And I'm, I'm one of the most prolific serial killers in the world. <laughs> I mean, now I'm tearing up, I'm almost crying right now. Think of how funny that is. And so I think in many ways that special is perfect, but my wife doesn't really like it. Kate doesn't really like the special. And I said, why is that? And she said, it's just too dark. And I thought that was interesting because I don't find him to be a particularly dark comedian. I think he speaks on subjects that are very dark, but yeah. that's because he's earnestly looking at what life is like. And if you're a nihilist, you sort of choose to accept and understand the meaninglessness and the darkness and the sadness and the Sisyphean um, uh, effort that goes into just being alive. And I don't find that dark at all, but my wife is not a nihilist in the traditional yeah. sense. And I think Norm chose to make everything funny. That was how he was nihilistic to me, was he said, this mockering charade, you know, this horrible, uh, you know, this meaningless charade that we call life and that ends in a catastrophe, that whole suicide bit. And um, and I, I just, that hits home. Phyllis, I think he's one of the great philosophers, the, one of the great philosopher comedians. Yeah, he definitely is. And so, um, you know, I didn't find any of his stuff to be dark at all. And I do think if, if Hitler's dog is um you know the culmination of his efforts as a comedian and his sort of um what's that french word now i'm revealing that my wife is smarter than i and kate would remember what this is but is coup de gras or whatever you would call it that's sort of his ultimate i think it's really representative of what a great comedian is and i was really pleased to see that Chappelle dedicated his final netflix special um to norm because yeah. I think it reminds people that he was so important to comedy and he was so funny and such, like you said, such a good person. Oh that, my God. Um, that um, it's really nice that Chappelle recognized that. Chappelle being sort of considered um, the greatest living comedian by some. And uh, I also can completely see how you guys were kindred spirits and that he could be your comedy dad because you are also really funny um really uh, uh really kind and a really deep deep good person and then and of course we're very smart and then also just brutally honest and maybe that's part of your asperger's but you see things and talk about things in a way where you're not filtering or trying to change you're just honest and you just call it like it is and see things as they are and i thought he did that a lot with his comedy did you did you see him as you know similar to you in that way I, I feel I feel I'm more similar to him than he was to me. Does that make sense? It does a little bit. Can you elaborate? Well, because you know how uh, I, I, I want to respect your time and I have two actual questions, but I'll talk about this. No, no, this is great. No, no, this okay. is great. I'm having so much. This is I'm having such a good time. I really okay. am. All right. Uh, so like, you know how like comics have like influence, like Chris Rock's influences, you know, uh, Richard yeah. Pryor and all that stuff. Well, yeah. Norm, Norm was my influence. So, I mean, 
mm-hmm. you know, when you're on the road with him, you 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 pick up mannerisms, and it's it's still like if I if I were to be on the road with you for so long, I would pick up mannerisms that you do. Of course, right? yeah, yeah. So I would say I'm more like him in the way he thinks, and then what I taught Norm is. I, ta- I, I truly believe I taught Norm how to look at the other side of a joke because he looked at all the angles and I taught, I felt I taught him how one side could be just as funny as the other sides, you know? Yeah. I think like, yeah. you want me to read you the last joke him and I wrote together? Yeah, of course. Okay. I, I actually memorize it, but so we were writing this because it, it's like old, cause like Norm used to close on like little, you know, jokes and joke book type of thing, but he used to put his own little spin to it. You know what I mean? So yeah. a, a nine-year-old boy goes up to his dad. And he says, dad, I, I was just watching uh, TV and I saw two guys kissing. What's that all about? And the dad says, oh, that means that they're gay. And the little boy's like, oh, is there anything wrong with being gay? And the dad's like, no, absolutely not. And then the little boy says, oh, would it be okay if I was gay? would you still love me and the dad says son you're my son i would love you gay or straight you'll always be my my boy and the little boy says oh can i suck your dick now (laughs) great that is so funny because if you're trying to telegraph or you're trying to see what's telegraphing the joke the joke would be all right well let's kiss you know because he was watching a gay porno the whole time (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. See, I wouldn't have seen it as that. As um, yeah, that's an angle that I wouldn't have seen. And yeah. I expect at the end is like, well, then why don't you French kiss me or something like that? Why don't you give me a kiss on the lips? But yeah, can I suck your dick? Is like such a <laughs> field thing. That's so. That is really really funny. Yeah. And yeah, it's perfect. And you know, it's so funny that people. There are all these things that you know he talks about being gay so much and. You know, online, of course, they were like, he, somebody was like, he's the most deeply closeted gay guy that's ever lived or something like that. And I really believe that he came from a time in his age that it was really funny and silly that two guys would have sex with each other and that it was funny to make fun of that, you know? And on all of his stuff where he's like jerking off um, guys under the, the the bridge you know when he was making fun of his sidekick all the time Adam Egan yeah Adam and uh and I talked to Adam Egan at one point and I was like that's so great what's going on he's like oh yeah having Norm Macdonald make fun of me all the time and being a sidekick but you could tell that he also loved that he was in the book and all that kind of stuff um and uh it I don't know it was it you know I, I really think he just thought it was funny. And he does it with, the, I can be tricked to the, just the same as anybody else. And the, ah, I hope you can see that I'm doing it. Uh, I'm resisting. Like, ah, hold on there, Captain, all that stuff. But then also in his special, I think it was important. He said, you know, I took time off to write a book and it ended up being the greatest comic novel ever written. Yeah. And I would say it is. I read it and I read it quickly. And I wanted to read it again so much, but I was like, I need to take time. Do you ever do this with a book? I need to take time to forget it. Right. And read it with fresh eyes. And I'm going to go back and read it now, um, you know, for a number of reasons, also that he passed away. But um, I think it's funny that he says that in Hitler's Dog, where he says, 
uh, you know, it ended up being the greatest. And I, I forget, I watched it again, because I remember him in the special the first time I saw it going, and it's true, you know, he kind of saying to the audience, like, no, really, I'm not joking. Um, and I do think he loved, great. he was most proud of the book, like, because I think what made him proud about that was he didn't think anyone would, would know that he could do that. You know what I mean? He said, I, I told him, I said, it was the greatest. I just said it was like Dostoevsky level and other people said that, but I just said, it. it's just, there's nothing like it. It's the highest form. Of, I just gave him the highest praise I could. And he said, I wish more people had read it. He sort of met that with, well, I wish more people knew that. Um, but I think he has to have, well, you just said it. He was yeah. the most proud of that. And I think that um, that will end up, that and Hitler's dog, but really that book will end up being this thing that, you know, I almost think it'll be taught in school as people start to consider comedy something that you should study and think about more. I think it's- I think that'd be cool. And I think, no, but I think it will be the case yeah. because I think, you know, for you, if you look at all the books that comedians have written, right, most of them are autobiographies or like Seinfeld, they are just uh, jokes written down, just material then put into book form. And this was not, you know, this was a very strange, surrealist, nihilistic, yeah, Dostoevsky-esque, Kafka-esque type of um, novel. And yeah, I think I'm so glad to hear that he was really proud of that because I think it's one of the great comedic literary triumphs ever, not yeah. even of our time, just ever. And so that was nice. And, you know, in my when I heard that you opened for him for so long in my life, I was, of course, very jealous of that, very envious. I would say I really envied that you had that time with him. And I told Kate I never got to see him live because I I was going to cancel shows and go and see him. And I planned on that three times, but because of one time, it just didn't work out with timing. And then the two other times I was gonna cancel work, the pandemic happened. And really? so I, I couldn't afford to lose um, work. That's interesting. Cause you lost so much money, you know? Cause Norm told me he, he worked with you at the Improv or the Laugh Factory. It was one of those. I think it was at the Laugh Factory because he saw me there. Right. But I think I got there late, if you can even believe it, and missed his set. Oh, okay. And um, so I didn't see him perform. I had met him in person um, a couple, once or twice. I met him at uh, Montreal just for laughs. Um, and he was about to smoke weed and I wanted to smoke weed with him, but I was getting pulled in the other direction because I was there for career-oriented stuff. And so it was sort of a missed connection a couple of times. But now that we're talking about it, he said some pretty great things. And, um, and we talked about some, I mean, you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, probably thousands of hours um, talking to him. But the few conversations we had were really, um, I, I also I learned some great things about comedy and, you know, some great. So I'm very thankful for the limited interaction that I had with him and that he was a fan. I mean, you just, isn't that what you, that's what you want? And you have that also. That's yeah. what you want. You want to think of the greatest comedian of all in, in one's own perspective. Well, and if that's that how I look at it. If that's a fan of yours, then what's better than that as a comedian? 
See, that's how I look at it. And because uh, like, I, I'm going to be real with you. I, I can't get into comedy clubs. I can't get into levity. I can't get into other clubs. But the fact that Norm believed in me, it makes me think I, that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I think that's right. It, actually, you said it better than I said it because you said it from your, you know, um, from your point of view or well, I'm having trouble reaching for words uh, today, but I um, you said it from you said it from the first person. But I um, what I was going to say is that I think if you're I don't know who he considered hack that was a very quote unquote successful comedian. I'm sure there are quite a few. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you're an incredibly successful headlining comedian, and let's say you really respected Norm and he thought you were kind of hack or didn't think you were funny, then you're going to have to find out in your mind why that is. And well, he just doesn't get it or something like that. Um, so I would rather be who I am at my level than be an arena sized comedian that the guy that I respect most as a stand-up comic just didn't think was funny. Yeah. Kind of thought was just pop culture, kind of not like hack, you know? Because all of us see certain comics and we think they're almost so bad that they're bad for the form of comedy, for the comedic form. Right. And so I think you've got it right, is what I'm saying, that that accomplishment and touring with that level of comedian is much more important than headlining the Levity Live Club or something like that, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so that's very special, you know, because there are people that are going to be millionaires from doing stand-up who will never have that. And so you, you can't buy that, is what I'm saying, and no club uh, or venue can give that to you. Uh, I wanted to ask my, my three questions for you because I know you got yeah. shows tonight and I want you to get some TJ time in. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, sure. TJ time is so funny. So you want me to kind of masturbate to a picture of me. Uh, <laughs> masturbate to a picture of me doing a, a better show at a better club. Yes, I understand. Okay, <laughs> okay so question number one. Uh, who do you, you when you take your headshots, do you use the same guy? Because I think your headshots are the coolest. Thank you. I draw from different stuff so the mad hatter headshot was taken by a very talented uh photographer mandy johnson in uh in los angeles who's always a big fan of, of mine and i was a big fan of hers and that was actually engagement pictures with kate and i that comes from a uh, photo shoot where it was kate as alice in wonderland and me as the mad hatter and we did some really cool stuff with that and one of the things was um kate smoking and me exhaling the smoke right that was very so that was great so that's where i got that one and this one is for my hbo special with the pen and the ink splattered across my face so that was an hbo photographer so no it's different stuff but i try and get different images and the one that i want to use uh for publicity that was just recently was i did shows at a um an old theater i'm i'm blanking on the place but it was a um it was an old theater and it's in a comedy club. So it's one of the improvs that was, you know, like the San Jose, this club's amazing. I was joking before, but this is in an old, uh, you know, 1800s vaudevillian theater. Yeah. And, There's also uh, a second stairway there. 
Yeah, it's amazing. So this place had a, um, a basement. Uh, and so we went downstairs and took pictures there. And that guy, of course, is like, yeah, you can use them for headshots. But I'm wearing very funny um, MC Escher, you know, track pants. They're Gucci that I bought secondhand. And then kind of my usual tour coat type of deal on top. Um, but, you know, thank you for saying all that. But yeah, I, I source different people and kind of wait for great images to happen, I guess okay. is what I'm going to say. Um, but I need new headshots with how I look now because now I'm clean shaven with shorter hair. And so that's different from what I look like in um, in a lot of the movies that people have seen me in. Um, but yeah, right now I'm really happy with that HBO because that that is also who I am right now. I'm kind of becoming a writer and a more, um, I hope, elevated, distinguished comedian. More more that route while still, while still being silly, of course. I still have elements of circus and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but right now that... I'm I'm happiest with this, and that's why I wanted it to be my art for the HBO special. You know, and then my second question is: uh, I I saw Underwater in the theaters, and uh, I don't know the guy's last name, but I know he's a great French actor because I've seen him before. What was it like working with Vincent? So it's Vincent Cassell, and if you ever say his name to a French person, they uh, will correct your pronunciation. And I have actually jokes about that. I don't do them on stage, but about how if you talk to a French person, you say a French word, they it's in their DNA to correct you. Right. And it actually is because that's what the teachers do to the kids is they always say the kids are doing it wrong and they have to do it right. But I'll say Vincent Cassell and they go, oh, Vincent Cassel. So then I started <laughs> saying, so then I started saying, uh, I started saying Vincent Cassel, and every French person is like, "Oh, Vincent Cassel." And then do so. I have a joke about that actually about a Polish. I should write that down because I should do that do that joke tonight. But write I have a joke down. about a because Polish. he's like the Brad Pitt in France. Like For he's sure, he was he's in, huge. He was in this thing called Mesro, and he's been. In, I said to him once, "This is my favorite thing from his." Um, uh, let me just write down Vincent Cassel. And, uh, and the Polish joke, which is about Polish people do the same thing. Um, and so, so I said to him once, I said, you know, you are, um, we were just talking about acting. And I said, I think in acting and directing and comedy, everything, you just need to be in three things that are great, that are so great that you would study them in um, school. That if it was a film class, let's say we're talking about film, that that they would actually show that in class. And I said that if you have that body of work, then you've done it. There's just no higher level to that. And uh, Vincent, yeah, you know, <laughs> he just kind of went, he just kind of went, um, he went, well then I have done it. <laughs> I, said, I said, what? And he goes, I have done it. I mean, you look, uh, La Hate, um, Eastern Promises and Irreversible. And it made it blew my mind that he had he had yeah. already done it, and he didn't even say Mesro, which is like the big it's the Godfather picture of France. Yeah. He played the fuck he was Marlon Brando, you know, or Al Pacino. He was that in these two movies that are a continuation. You know, they're sort of one and two, but they're one thing. And um, 
It was true. He, Eastern Promises, you would uh, you would watch that in a film class. Irreversible is one of the most terrifying, disturbing films of all time that you see that in a film class. And I hadn't seen La Hate, and so I went, which I'm definitely mispronouncing, and he would find that really pathetic. But that was like <laughs> his first movie, and it's like one of the great movies of all time. And so that was so interesting to me. And so he was just great, but he was... He, I thought that the movie was going to be really interesting. And for me, Underwater was a continuation of Cloverfield. It was like a full, and it happened almost exactly 10 years after Cloverfield. Right. So to me, it was, I was going to show how my acting in genres that were not comedy had progressed to, um, had progressed over that 10 years of 10,000 hours, like a comedian, 10 years, and then you become a master of stand-up comedy, and then you need to see um, where you're gonna go from there. Um, and so it was very, uh, very interesting to me to do that film for that reason. And I was gonna show that I can be a very good um, horror genre, um, you know, monster movie genre actor who brought in comedy, who brought the comedy that that's what I did in Cloverfield. Right. So I, I attempted to do that in Underwater. Um, for Vincent Cassel, he sort of, um, he said he was a little Scooby-Doo, you know, a little yeah. silly, you know, you run around, but you know, you do certain things for certain reasons. And I think he did it because he wanted to do an American movie and he wants to keep his foot in that, that, that door yeah and um but he thought it was silly and i thought it was fun but was more about my sort of the scope the arc of my career from just cloverfield to that um and he had fun with it i mean you know what's great about him is sometimes if it was a certain you know scene or certain days he, he I, I would describe him as a real gangster he would smoke weed or hash during lunch sometimes he was, he watched a lot of French hip hop. He listened to a lot of French hip hop. Um, he just had this very gangster um, vibe to him. Yeah. And at the time he was learning this Russian style of fighting where when you hit somebody, you do it like this. You don't put your larger, you find certain points and it's very minimalist fighting. I forget what it's called. It's, it's not like hard style, but it's something like that. It's very Russian. Oh, it's stabbing a guy in the neck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the Russian form of fighting. Um, but he was learning that and wanted to incorporate it into... So he was a dude that could fight somebody very easily. And um, he kind of... Uh, he was just... He was a dude who... Check it on my battery. Hold on a second. Okay, we're fine. He was a dude who just was so cool. And so I really got along well with him. He actually clashed a little bit with um Kristen Stewart because she's she has a very gangster um kind of energy to her as well right. so I got along with her really well I got along with him really well because as you know I have a bit of a gangster aesthetic to me um but they sort of butted heads a little bit because he's such a star in France and she is such a star in the United States yeah. and I think ultimately he was frustrated that she was the focus of the film when he usually is. Right. And I feel that she was self-conscious that he didn't think that she was a great actress. 
Right. And so that's a very, you know, actors often are very insecure. And I, because I'm not an actor, I don't consider myself really insecure. But Ryan Reynolds has a lot of insecurity to him, which he'll openly admit. And um, my would, uncle kissed Ryan Reynolds, like in a movie. My sister, sorry to interrupt you. No, I, I think you would find this funny because he did this movie called Ted, and Ryan Reynolds was just like a cameo. So yeah. uh, my my sisters uh, would ask my uncle Pat. It would be like, so Pat is Ryan because like they're obsessed with Ryan Reynolds. They're like, is Ryan Reynolds a good kisser? And Pat would just be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it Ted, the movie about the bear to Seth MacFarlane? Yeah. Oh, my God. That is so fun. Well, now I got to go back and watch that just for that moment. <laughs> and I love, too, you know that you're Hollywood. You are when you say a movie called and then you do it. And if it's a famous movie, but I say that, I go, I did this movie called Deadpool. And so funny because people are like, I know a move, I know Deadpool, but you just that's sort of the, the humility that you bring with when you don't say, and he was in Ted. Can you fucking believe <laughs> like he's called Ted? Well, he was in funny, Ted but, for 10 seconds. But yeah, but so I just wanted to cap that off by saying about underwater, I've never seen it. I've never yeah. seen the film. Oh. Because I didn't go to the premiere and um and I don't know why. It just never Kate and I were gonna watch it on Halloween. And then we didn't do it. She's not seen it either. But her father has seen it because um, in this movie called Underwater, he, um, he, uh, I, I, his favorite joke is this joke. Of, he always says, perfect eight-year-old humor. What did the fish say when it hit the brick wall? Damn. And I said, I'm going to try and get that in this movie. And what I've heard is that it's in the movie that I tell that joke. I think it is. I, it is. I haven't seen it in two years, but yeah, yeah. I know. I, it, 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 people have told me that it is. And my father-in-law went and saw it and it was in there and it was just, that's like my triumph from that movie underwater. I don't care if it's my, one of my managers said it was a bad movie and I have so many fans come up to me and say they loved it. And last night a fan came up to me in the meet and greet and I said, I saw underwater and you're so amazing in it. I said, well, what did you think of the movie? Because I've heard mixed reviews. And she goes, eh, it was so, but you were great. And when you die and what happens and you get sucked. And I was like, I haven't seen it. Don't tell me any details. She right. said, when you die. She goes, I don't I even know if I died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read the script. I did the film, but please don't tell me anything about it. And she, but no, she said, um, she said that was so scary. And so, and I did that death scene like the third day, like really early on after we were getting used to the suits, after we were underwater waiting to shoot this thing. Some days we would be in the water for like eight hours. Yeah. You'd get out and your entire body was a prune and your face was the same. And so you would look like a reverse old person. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Ben buttons from the uh, neck down and the neck up, but you know, different parts of his life. And so um, I don't know. So I really, that actually was the biggest thing for me is that was my first death scene on camera where it was actually like, and I really wanted it to be scary and not funny and really, really sad and really freak people out. And I know that when I did it, I said, yeah, I did what I wanted to do because um, the Fox, the studio, uh, talked to my agency afterwards. And they're like, we're really lucky to have him in this uh, film. He's a really great actor. 
yeah. is, is really, really something. So I feel good about Underwater, even though I haven't seen it, but I'm wondering if I'll ever see it. I've seen every other movie I've been in, but it kind of would be interesting to me to never have seen this movie because of how important it was to the whole arc, to the big picture. All right, so what's, what, what's the next question? My last question is, uh, what, in your mind, how is it to transition from acting in movies to stand-up to voice acting? And which one, obviously you love stand-up more, but do you love voice acting more than acting? It's a tough, uh, it'd be tough to say one or the other. The thing I love about voice acting is I started with Cloverfield and that was essentially a voiceover job, right? Not many people think of it that way, but that's absolutely the case. And I think that's what helped me then get How to Train Your Dragon and then get all my voice work in Gravity Falls and How to Train Your Dragon, the television show and later Big Hero 6 and then the Emoji movie before that. I've done so much voiceover. And the thing I like about it is you can do as many takes as you want. Awesome. I take a joke slot from Big Hero 6 or something like that or Gravity Falls and instead of three jokes, trying three or four jokes like we would in, um, you know, television or something like that. Television is a good example because you need to move on. Right. So you can do a bunch of jokes, but you can't. Um, once you've moved on, you can't go back. And I in voiceover, you're able to do a bunch and then be like, oh, I thought of something for like five scenes ago. Can I try that again? And they're like, yeah, of course. So you have a lot of freedom and a lot of space to be funny and to be creative. Cause you know, I'm an improviser and people hire me in film and television because I'm gonna be quote unquote, writing a lot of my own lines. Right. Um, but I like film because it requires you to use your entire apparatus to be funny. And I like film because it's so uh, little. It's, so, it's such small moments, there's so, and I think that's why I've been very successful in film and a lot of comedians have been more successful in television. Or some people end up doing a four camera sitcom and then they never really go on to film because they're too big. And if you're too big in film, you're fucked. You know, you just, yeah. it doesn't work. The audience is like, why are you doing this? You know, on the big screen, you're so much more gigantic. So things seem so much bigger. And so I did it when I left Silicon Valley, I really was saying I wanna do film. And what I really want to do is, and always want to do, is write and act in my own films that somebody else directs and to do stand-up. That oh. would be my ideal life. And to one day, another reason that Norm is, in my opinion, the all-time great, the G-O-A-T, um, is because I would really like in my 50s, you know, I'm in my 40s now, I would, <laughs> the very beginning, um, I would like to be an author and I would like to live with Kate in Europe or something like that, or be a New York guy that just does New York stand-up clubs. And then during the day and in general writes and is paid to be a writer and writes philosophy books and books of essays and things like that. And that's very interesting to me to be sure. And actually that was my latest uh, discussion with my managers was, uh, it's a book and what's the book? What's my first, it's my freshman effort as an author. Oh um, my God. Yeah. And so- I look forward to reading that, man. Yeah, well, listen, it'll be great. And I am a very prolific writer because the, the thing that I'm most excited about now is I wrote something during the pandemic called The Loneliest Megaplex. And it's a pandemic period piece in June of 2020 
uh, movie theaters open up, but um, no one is going to see movies. And so I get hired back to the theater where I used to work, but I'm the only person they hire because they don't need, they just need somebody to sell the tickets, do the concessions. And, and in each episode, really just one group of kids comes or one elderly couple comes. In one of the episodes, the manager of another megaplex, one town over in the chain of megaplexes comes to see a movie. And then at the end of it, she invites me to come to see a movie. And we don't even think twice because nobody's coming to the theaters. So right. it doesn't matter if I leave, I can just, and what I do is I just leave the megaplex open. And so people can come and watch a movie for free. They're not going to complain about, you know, what can they steal? Soft pretzels? <laughs> can't steal any of the equipment. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can't see any of the chairs. They're all bolted to the fucking ground. Um, and so, see, a lot of my writing comes from just talking about stuff to funny people, which is what it sounds like you had that relationship with Norm MacDonald. Um, uh, and so uh, that's something that I've written that I'm really excited about because it all takes place in one, um, it all takes place in one place. The, the, the movie theater. And so we can easily rent a movie theater out or just shoot at night. Cause right. We're never outside. Right. Um, we can shoot at night. So I think I could do the entire series in like a week or two weeks or something. Um, and I, you know, I'm the star of it and I wrote it. So it's just an easy thing. And it's one of these great projects where it, it's the merger of being, cause I've produced a lot of television. I've produced short films that went to Sundance. It's the merger between a great idea, right? Really top of my game writing, especially for me. And I play a really sweet guy. And it's just a really, it's a great, it's, it's me and office Christmas party, but I wrote it. So it's even a better version of that character. Perfect merger of that, of the creative and of the producer's mind of how do we make something that's so cheap, it can definitely be made and we don't need a million dollars for it, you know? And so that's really exciting to me. So I'm going to, you know, it's not one of those things where uh, one day, hopefully I'll make it. It's like, I'll make it in the next year or so, for sure. Right. And it's just a question of finding the right director because I don't like to direct myself um, uh, because I just, I don't, I, I like to have somebody else that I respect to bounce my performance off of. Can I be I've the Asperger guy who steals the pretzel? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I think that would be great. Listen, that's a promise. All right. We're TJ, where can the folks follow you? I know you got to get going. We're going to, we're going to, your, your character name will be uh, 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 Asperger Pretzels Boy. <laughs> Asperger Charlie. <laughs> Asperger Charlie is great. Asperger Charlie, the pretzel guy. <laughs> and it's so funny because uh, there is a lot of stuff in the series about hot pretzels. Uh -huh. and I like them and I eat them with mustard, but not, and me and the girl uh, from the other megaplex, the ingenue, we kind of connect over that. So that's really funny. And you know what? Talking to you has reinvigorated me. I think I'll, when I come home tonight after the shows, I'm going to sit down and do some writing uh, on that very thing because you're so funny. And this is perfect. You're such a good host. You're perfect. I have 2% left on my battery. So you can't <laughs> find me on this computer in the next 2%. But you can find me at teenage, uh, teenage Millionaire on Instagram, at not TJ Miller on Twitter. My website, of course, is TJ Miller does not have a website.com. Um, you can email me 
uh, through Facebook. Uh, you can Google me if you want to find out my Facebook, even though it's irritating to me that that's even something that I have to deal with. All of this stuff is pretty irritating. And you can find me in most hotels uh, watching either Norm McDonald's special Hitler's dog or reading his book. Uh, and also uh, on the Reza Riffs uh, podcast, which you got to tell me because I, I can't wait to, to share this with people because you're so funny and so earnest and uh, so sweet and such a good dude that I can't wait to tell people about this because if I could represent myself, um, it would be on a podcast with you because it's so effortlessly easy to just have this honesty between the two of us. And like, like you said, we have that bond, that comedy brothers, comedy yeah. brothers. All right, TJ. Well, I love you, buddy. I have a I show too you. tonight. You have a show. Kill it. Kill it. All right. I'll talk to you later, buddy. Talk to you soon. That was my interview with TJ Miller, guys. Subscribe, brand review. Follow TJ. It was awesome. And we'll see you guys next week. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee right here on LA Talk Radio. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcast. Give us some feedback. Good, honest, terrible, doesn't matter. Also, follow us on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Razor Riffs. I am also on Stereo if you would like to chat with me there. www.stereo.com slash KeithRaza. And on Cameo, www.cameo.com slash KeithRaza. If you enjoyed the show, please send us a donation on the Anchor app. We really do appreciate it, and we'll rift with you again soon.